1: The House is on fire and the arsonists can't seem to figure out why. Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans send the federal government careening towards a shutdown as Donald Trump continues to pull the strings. Congressman Eric Swalwell has made a name for himself, calling out the crazy across the aisle, and he's coming up first. Plus, Trump implies that General Mark Milley should get the death penalty concerning enough on its own. Even more so when you consider Millie could be a witness in the former president's trials. Also today, Rupert Murdoch steps aside. I've got a few thoughts about the legacy he leaves behind and the future of Fox News. And later, my wide-ranging exclusive interview with Hillary Clinton, her thoughts on the Trump indictments, Republicans' ridiculous impeachment inquiry, and the state of the 2024 race for president. Back in January, when it took 15 rounds of votes over five days for Kevin McCarthy to be elected Speaker of the House, which, by the way, required selling his soul in the form of a secret deal we still don't know a lot about to the extreme right wing of his party, there literally has not been a more chaotic start to his speakership ever. And yet this week, with the House paralyzed and barreling toward a shutdown, McCarthy seemed shocked, shocked by the unruly behavior of his caucus.
2: This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. That doesn't work.
1: Really? It's a whole new concept that certain Republicans want to burn the place down? Well, do I have news for you, Speaker McCarthy, if you've been sleeping for the last couple of years? The building has been on fire for years. Ten years ago, Republicans led by Ted Cruz and the Tea Party forced a government shutdown. Remember that? Five years ago, then-President Trump, a Republican House and a Republican Senate, they controlled everything, somehow managed to shut themselves down for a record 35 days. Earlier this year, MAGA Republicans also pushed our country to default on its debt. And if we really want to talk about burning the whole place down, when the actual Capitol building was under attack by a group of insurrectionists, Kevin McCarthy and his majority and the majority of his party simply waved it off and pledged loyalty to the architect of that chaos, Donald Trump. This destructive behavior is anything but new. And it's worth remembering in this moment, Kevin McCarthy had an off-ramp, more than one off-ramp, out of this mess. After January 6th, he could have followed through with his plans to tell Trump to resign. Instead, he backed off. Far, far off. All the way down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring. Now, Trump is effectively running the House. He's pulling the strings. He knows it. In a post on Truth Social, he made pretty clear why he wants to shut the government down, to obstruct the prosecutions against him. For what it's worth, it doesn't quite work that way, but that aside. So yes, Speaker McCarthy, they want to burn the place down, but this is not new. And even if Trump is pulling the strings behind the curtain, Mr. McCarthy, you are the Speaker of this House. It is your job to fix it, to put out the fire. The big question now, less than a week away from a potential government shutdown, is whether you can do the job. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me uh, this afternoon. I I just want to start with what is happening in the House. How do you explain to people who haven't been tracking this closely what is going on in the House right now?
3: Uh, Kevin McCarthy is a spectator speaker. He may have the title but Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates they all share the job. And the problem is, is is that McCarthy is only worried about his own job and keeping it and not the jobs of your viewers, the millions who will be affected uh, if we don't pay our troops, if we don't pay border agents, if we don't pay air traffic controllers. And so McCarthy could simply bring forward the same legislation that Senator Schumer and McConnell have worked on in the Senate that President Biden would sign and, and, and be an adult and put the country first, and we would fund the government before funding ran out. But instead, uh, the House Republicans uh, are failures. Uh, they are the failures. They've failed to govern. And because they can't govern, they've failed to fund. And because they can't fund on every core area where we need government, they're going to fail to protect. They're the failures, Jen.
1: Now, we, we are just six days away here. It's such an important point. The Senate has already passed these funding bills, Democrats and Republicans. Do you have any level of confidence we can avoid a shutdown at the end of this week?
3: If Kevin McCarthy puts the country ahead of his own job, yes. We can do that. And, and, and by the way, I would like to think that this isn't the only job the guy could get, that if he lost his job because he did the right thing, he'd be rewarded and there'd be something better in the future. But if he's only looking at this through the prism of how do I stay in power? Well, he can buy himself another day, another week, another month, but it comes at the cost of Americans, uh, Americans who will suffer if the government is shut down. So I, I'm not too optimistic. He'd have to do something that he has not done before. But Democrats, we're working for working people. And we have shown uh, on raising uh, the debt ceiling and paying America's bills that if he wants to come to us for votes, uh, we'll be there uh, to deliver the votes.
1: There are legislative maneuvers that could force a vote to the floor involving Democrats and some Republicans. Do you think that's where we're at? Is that a likely possibility at this point?
3: Unfortunately, it may may come to that, Jen, uh, and and that's called a discharge petition, a very Washington Mm -hmm. uh, wonky word, Uh, but it it would require uh, it it would require Republicans crossing over. Some of them have already said that they may be willing uh, to do that and and so on funding the government on keeping Ukraine in the fight. uh, It looks like that may be kind of the firewall uh, against the chaos uh, that McCarthy and MAGA Republicans can bring to us.
1: I wanted to ask you about Donald Trump's role here. He obviously has no official role in the House operations, but he's clearly pulling strings behind the scenes. He posted on Truth Social, in part, quote, this is also the last chance to defund these political prosecutions against me and other patriots. That's not how it works. But what do you make of his demand and his role in this chaos?
3: Donald Trump and McCarthy and, and the other Pro insurrection Republicans have never accepted Joe Biden as the president. They tried to run and incite and inflame an insurrection uh, that failed. They voted to acquit the insurrection when we brought forth impeachment proceedings in the House and the Senate. Many of McCarthy's folks go to the January 6th uh, prisoners and visit them to give them comfort and aid. And so they've never accepted, uh, president Biden as a legitimate president. And this week, even as we are hurtling toward a shutdown, they'll hold impeachment proceedings, which is just a continuation of the insurrection. And, and so this is all about just putting Donald Trump in charge. The house, unfortunately has become a law firm, uh, with just one client, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and again, it's at the expense of American people who have needs on bringing their health care costs down, keeping their kids safe, uh, in school, uh, we're you know in just a couple of days, student loan repayments are going to start mm-hmm. back up, and, and so people are going to feel uh, the pain there. Uh, they need action on these issues uh, again. Uh, instead, all they get from the House Republicans uh, is action for one client, and, and that is uh, you know the twice impeached, uh, ninety-one count indicted former president.
1: You had quite a moment this week uh, at a hearing where Attorney General Merrick Garland was testifying. I want to play this moment where you called out your colleague, Jim Jordan, after he said uh, the attorney general should be held in contempt of Congress, because you, you really cut to the core of it here.
3: Mr. Jordan is about 500 days into evading his subpoena, about 500 days. So if we're going to talk about contempt of Congress— Let's get real. I mean, are are you serious that Jim Jordan, a witness to one of the greatest crimes ever committed in America, a crime where more prosecutions have occurred than any crime committed in America, refuses to help his country, and we're going to get lectured about subpoena compliance? Mr. Attorney General, you are serious. They are not. You are decent. They are not. You are fair. They are not.
1: So, Congressman, I mean, you kind of punch back verbally at the bullies there. Do you think that's something that Democrats should be doing more of in these hearings? We're seeing some of it. But is that part of your strategy and what you want to see from others?
3: Yes. And that's because, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. In a void, Republicans, you know, will continue to tell lies about President Biden. And that's in part why I think his approval rating is as low as it is, is that they— Tell these lies. We don't punch back hard enough. We play on our side of the field rather than theirs, and then on the right wing uh, media ecosystem, it just reinforces those lies. And then they use the low poll numbers to justify why they're going to lean in uh, even more. And so I, I do believe uh, in every hearing we should take what I call a three D approach. You know, first immediately discredit them. And, and Jordan, it's easy to discredit him because he won't even honor his own subpoena. Uh, mm-hmm. Two, you know, to debunk any of the claims that they're making that are false. Don't chase every single one of them, but the substantive ones that could really, you know, I would say pervert uh, the truth, you have to debunk those and then always pivot to what we have delivered and what we will deliver, uh, you know, in a new majority in the House uh, under President Biden and a majority in the Senate. So discredit, debunk and always deliver. And I think that plays on their side of the field rather than being on our heels on our own.
1: That's some pretty good advice. Hope people listen. Before I let you go, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez was charged with bribery this week. I know you've said you're waiting to see how your New Jersey colleagues respond, but Governor Phil Murphy, a majority of the House Democrats from New Jersey have already called on him to resign. So, do you think he should resign?
3: He should. Uh, And also, I I think it's important uh, that we point out that, speaking of Merrick Garland, uh, that Any idea that the Department of Justice is being weaponized to protect President Biden is just nonsense. Uh, this is the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, one of the most, you know, most powerful positions in government. And Merrick Garland, uh, is moving, you know, with his Department of Justice, uh, to indict this senator. And, and so, uh, this just shows that the rule of the law applies to everyone, whether it's the former president, whether it's the current president's son, or whether it's a Democratic, uh, senator. But in the same spirit, I would really love to see my Republicans, you know, who like to get all high and mighty whenever something happens to Democrats or like to make these accusations against Merrick Garland, call on George Santos to resign, who's actually admitted mm-hmm. to almost everything that he's been charged with, and to call on Clarence Thomas to resign, uh, who Day after day, we learn more and more about people who have come before the court who have invested millions in Clarence Thomas and his family and his livelihood. So, uh, again, it seems like Democrats are the only ones who are consistent and care about the rule of law applying to everybody. And and again, I hope that your viewers and and voters uh, recognize that when they have to make decisions about who should be in charge.
1: Congressman Eric Swalwell, I know from having little kids myself, you have a busy Sunday of soccer (laughs) games and other events ahead. Thank you so much for taking the time. (laughs) Pure chaos, exactly.
3: Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Coming up, could a Trump social media post about General Mark Milley be considered witness intimidation? Plus, I'll ask Hillary Clinton if she believes Trump when he says he'd never pardon himself. And later, Rupert Murdoch may be passing the Fox News baton to his son, but will it have any impact on the right-wing ecosystem he's created? We're just getting started this hour. Stay with us.
0: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com/app.
4: Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both the Saturday Show and the Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow.
1: On Friday night, Donald Trump posted an attack against the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. Trump called him a woke train wreck and insinuated that the general should have been executed for treason. Trump does a lot of crazy stuff, but let's just pause on that for a moment. The former president of the United States is openly musing about the execution of his former top military advisor. Even by Trump standards, that is pretty crazy. But those threats could also have serious legal implications. It's very possible that Milley could serve as a witness in one, if not both, of the federal cases against Trump. Remember back during the House Select Committee's investigation into January 6th, General Milley testified to Trump's state of mind after he lost the 2020 election.
4: So we're in the Oval and there's a discussion
0: going on. And the president says, I think it could have been Pompeo, but he says words to the effect of yeah, we lost. We need, to, we need to let that issue go to the next guy, being President Biden.
1: Now, we don't know yet if Millie will be a witness for the prosecution against Trump in the federal elections case. But again, he certainly could be. And this all comes as Judge Tanya Chekin weighs whether or not to issue a limited gag order on the former president. It's kind of hard to believe that threats like those wouldn't have an impact on her decision. Joining me now is former acting U.S. Solicitor General Neal Katyal, and don't worry, the law firm has not broken up. Andrew Weissman is traveling, but we're thrilled to have Neal with us today. So, Neal, I want to start there, because Mark Milley is such a significant figure. Do you think, having watched a lot of this in the past, that he's going to be a witness for the prosecution in the federal elections case?
4: I do. And I don't think that uh, Mr. Bonespurs is in any position to criticize any member of our military, um, let alone a war hero like General Milley. Um, It's not clear to me, Jen, that what you what we saw was a death threat by you know the way some are portraying it, mm-hmm. Trump's uh, tweet. But it is ridiculous when the context is someone who is almost certainly a witness in January sixth, if not Mar-a-Lago, if not the Cor- Colorado case that uh, in which there's already been a protective order filed. Um. So so that's one thing. The other just, you know, we constitutional lawyers have kind of a limited imagination, like a lawless president is like the apogee of the worst thing that we imagine. But the article that Trump is responding to by Jeff Goldberg in The Atlantic about General Milley paints a picture of Trump as just plain nuts and nobody mm-hmm. like that should have. The ability to launch a nuclear weapon and destroy, or a nuclear war and destroy the planet. And so I hope that this article spurs discussion about a no first use policy, you know, so that no president uh, can do something like this. And the article is terrifying, and every American should read it. Yeah,
1: I think a lot of national security experts would agree with you, and anyone who reads that excellent article. So we're waiting this week, Neil, Judge Chuckin, to kind of we're waiting for Trump's response from Trump's team, and we're also waiting then for Judge Chutkin to make a decision about this protective order. How does all of this weigh into that, you know, his his continued threats?
4: I mean Trump was already on really thin ice beforehand. Remember that Judge Chutkin right from the start when he she first brought him into court and you know had his first hearing before the magistrate, he was warned, like, you know, you have to, you know, stay within the lines. And Trump, of course, has been pushing those lines dramatically over the last six weeks. And, you know, this tweet I think is further evidence of that. So I've been hoping that Judge Chutkin will call. Donald Trump directly into the court, look at him in the eye and say, you can't do this stuff. This is not the way any criminal trial can operate. You're not special. You are a criminal Mm -hmm. defendant, Donald Trump, not President Donald Trump.
1: So we're waiting for tomorrow's the deadline, as I mentioned, for Trump's team to kind of respond here. What do you anticipate the argument is they're going to make as they respond to Jack Smith's gag order request?
4: Yeah, a lot of whining about free speech and the First Amendment. And the First Amendment does allow him to do some things, but not intimidate witnesses and interfere with the search for truth. I mean, the whole point of a criminal trial is to have a regularized, orderly, specific process so that people feel comfortable going and telling their stories. And as I said, already a judge in the Colorado case has entered a protective order just Mm -hmm. a couple days ago, barring Trump from intimidating or threatening witnesses.
1: Neil Katyal, I know you're getting a big award in London, so congratulations to that. Thank you for taking the time uh, today and look forward to seeing you again soon. Up next, I sit down with Hillary Clinton for a wide-ranging conversation. I'll get her take on everything from the Trump indictments to the chaos in the House to Vladimir Putin's persistent influence on American politics. And later, I've got some things to get off my chest on Rupert Murdoch's departure from Fox News and what it doesn't mean for the future of the network. We're back after a quick break. first to say it, but it bears repeating. A year is kind of an eternity in politics, and we've still got more than a year to go before the next presidential election. But right now, it looks very much like we are staring down another matchup between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And the new NBC News poll out today is just the latest to show that Biden and Trump are virtually tied, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. But despite the fact that we do still have a long way to go, the polls and those well-documented concerns about Joe Biden's age have kicked off what's now become a bit of a tradition for some in the Democratic Party. The early panic, as my old boss David Pluff famously coined it, the bedwetting. So how concerned should Democrats be? I caught up with Secretary Hillary Clinton this week at the annual meeting of the Clinton Global Initiative to get her perspective. She had a lot to say about the 2024 race, Donald Trump, the Republican Party and the looming presence of a certain Russian leader. The polling right now for 2024 for the presidential race is tied. Is that something that surprises
5: you or worries you? No, it doesn't yet. I mean, we're a long way out. And I think uh, there is, um, you know, a a kind of, um, you know, looking and almost shopping mentality in uh, voters like, oh, who am I going to have to vote for? Mm -hmm. And wait a minute, I'm not happy with that. They're never happy with what the choices are. (laughs) You know, I've I've seen that for many years. The purple unicorn.
1: The The elusive purple
5: unicorn. Exactly. And so, honestly, I think that the issues will not be joined for quite some time and i feel good about where the democrats are and where uh president biden and vice president harris are because you know and and i think biden is the one who says this all the time don't judge me against the almighty judge me against the alternative and I have been very clear in saying I am for the Biden-Harris ticket because of what they've accomplished, uh, which I value and I think is making a big difference in helping us uh, shape our future. But I'm also for them because the alternative is so dangerous. And I think people will begin to pay more attention uh, as time goes
1: by. When you mention the ticket, I mean, you have fought against More sexism in public than anyone, probably, globally, from Vladimir Putin to right-wing Republicans, the gamut. You know, there has been more talk, at least in my time in politics, about questioning whether the vice president should be on the ticket. I know what I think that's about, but I want to know what you think that's about. Well, I think it's about,
5: uh, you know, a number of things. I think vice presidents are either never thought about or they're an afterthought. Um, and it's a tough position to be in, no matter who you are. Uh, but I also think that she's a first. I mean, she's the first woman. She's the first woman of color. She's the first daughter of immigrants. I mean, you can go on down the list. And uh, so there will definitely be A lot more scrutiny uh, than is usual for a vice president who I dare say most people couldn't even name in in many of the administrations uh, uh, going back uh, to the beginning. So, honestly, again, I think she's done a much better job than she gets credit for. I think that she. Um, has proven to be a good partner for the president. And this is a decision that belongs to the president, whoever the president is. I remember when I chose Tim Kaine to be my running mm-hmm. mate. He had been a successful governor. He had been a successful senator. I thought here is somebody who could literally step into the job, which to me is a uh, very important criterion, but who also, you know, had a great reputation as a colleague working with people. Oh, you know, some people said he's not this, he's not that, but he was my choice. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of uh, the process, it's the president's choice. And I think that uh, he made a good choice.
1: Vladimir Putin uh, Mm. has obviously, your friend, your (laughs) friend and mine, uh, he has uh, intervened in our election in the past. It's not something, as you experienced firsthand, it's not something we talk about a lot. Do you fear that that is something that could be happening for 2024? And do you think we should be talking about it more?
5: Well, I think we should be talking about it more because I don't think, despite all of the... Uh, you know, deniers. Uh, there's any doubt that he interfered in our election, or that he has interfered in many ways in uh, the uh, internal affairs of other countries, funding political parties, funding, you know, political candidates, uh, buying off, uh, you know, government officials in different places. So that is his opus, uh, uh, you know, his his opus operandi, in the sense that he hates democracy. He particularly hates the West, and he especially hates us. And he has determined that he can do two things simultaneously. He can try to continue to damage and divide us internally, and he's quite good Mm. at it. And sadly, he has a lot of apologists and enablers uh, in our own country, people who either Don't see the danger or dismiss it out of hand or maybe agree with some of the, uh, you know, positions he's taken, uh, on certain things, including, uh, his barbaric invasion of Ukraine. And so dividing us and then trying to seize territory, uh, in such a, uh, brutal way to try to expand his reach, to try to restore the Russian empire if not the former soviet union that is who he is Mm -hmm. i said that for years part of the reason he worked so hard against me is because he didn't think that uh, he wanted me uh in the white house so we are where we are and part of the challenge is to continue to uh, explain to the american public that you know, the kind of leader Putin is, this authoritarian dictator who literally kills his uh, opposition, kills journalists, poisons people uh, who disagree with him, invades other country, interferes with our election. Um, that is part of the alternative we have to reject in this election. We have to reject authoritarianism. We have to reject a kind of creeping fascism, almost, mm-hmm. of people who... Uh, are really ready to turn over their thinking, their votes uh, to wannabe dictators, and we can't allow that to proceed. So I think it's I think it's fair to say that uh, y- you know you have a tough job because you have to talk about what's happening in the news, but you also have to keep people's eyes on what's right behind the horizon. And I fear that um, you know the Russians have proved themselves to be quite adept at interfering and. Uh, If he has a chance, he'll do it again.
1: Another person whose skin you've gotten under is Donald Trump, of course, Mm. who uh, is facing four indictments, as we know. Um, He recently said that he is very unlikely, it would be very unlikely that he would attempt to pardon himself. Do you believe him? I don't believe him on anything.
5: Why would I start believing him on that? Um, You know, the thing about him, and, and I'm not the only person who's noticed this, is he engages in what psychologists call projection. Mm -hmm. So whenever he accuses somebody else of doing something, it's almost guaranteed he's doing it himself or he's already done it. Or whenever he denies uh, thinking about doing something or doing it, it's almost guaranteed he is thinking about it or he's already done it.
1: Before I let you go, there's now been a date set for the impeachment hearing, so-called. I'm going to put them in quotes for Mm -hmm. President Biden, Mm -hmm. there are, there's a disagreement in the Democratic Party on how to deal with this because there's no proof. They're in pursuit of a reason. What do you think they should be doing?
5: Well, first of all, I don't. I don't know how they can proceed with an impeachment if they haven't had a vote. And uh, maybe I missed it because I've been so busy here at CGI they trying to had a vote, trying to. <laughs> well, be you've been inspired. positive and come up with solutions to our problems, which is what I like to think about. Um, so I, I don't know how they're just basically uh, blowing off the process. Um, there's no there there. And in fact, it seems they know there's no there there. And sadly, the. Speaker of the House is too weak to stand up against the uh, most rabid, uh, you know, block of uh, his uh, members who don't care what the truth or the facts are. They just want to, you know, be able to grandstand and try to cause President Biden problems. I mean, it's not a real threat. It's a terrible bother. But more than that, it is a real confession by the Republican Party. They have no agenda. They have no interest in trying to bring people together to solve problems. I have said for years, because I was in the Senate when I voted for immigration Mm -hmm. reform, as a majority of the Senate did. And George W. Bush said he would sign it and the House wouldn't take it up because they don't want a solution to what's happening on the border. They want a political problem. Uh, that they can try to use for their own benefit. That's what this is to keep, you know, the base, whoever that is, in some parts of our country all riled up while they make up stuff that has no basis. In fact, it is no way to run a great country. And the only way we're going to get through this, Jen, is by defeating them. You know, people say to me all the time, what can we do? And I say, well, you can vote. Mm-hmm. And they go, what else? I said, that's the most important thing. <laughs> that's the one. That's it. You get up there, and you vote, mm-hmm. and you vote for people who actually want to get things done and don't traffic in lies and falsehoods and hatred and divisiveness. That's what you can do to help our country.
1: Some Get out there and vote. Some pretty good advice there from Secretary Clinton in a wide-ranging interview. Coming up, as Robert Murdoch steps aside, I'll offer some thoughts on the culture of division he created and what it's done to the country. And then Brian Stelter, who has spent a lot of time digging into Fox News over the years, joins me to discuss what the network's future looks like. We'll be right back.
2: There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it.
1: Something has to change. The Old South is being replaced by the New South.
2: Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah, Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
0: Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.
1: So you can't really talk about the right wing ecosystem in this country without talking about Rupert Murdoch who announced this week that he's retiring from his role as chairman of Fox and News Corp. But even if he never sets foot in his office again, he removes himself entirely, which, by the way, I'm very skeptical of, he's already created this right-wing media ecosystem that will keep functioning long after his departure. Because over the years, Murdoch's core objective has been to make Americans fearful of a constant shifting enemy, the other. Sometimes the other is someone who doesn't look like the people in your community. Sometimes the other is someone who dresses differently from the expected norm. Sometimes the other is someone with a different religion or sexual orientation or gender identity. Murdoch has known that fear sells, particularly fear of specific types of people who don't fit the mold of the heterosexual, white, Christian American. It's been a cynical but clearly profitable strategy for him for over two decades— And it starts with the war on terror and the coverage of the Iraq war. Day after day, anchors and hosts like Bill O'Reilly, yeah, I remember that guy, singled out Muslims with aspersions and innuendo.
0: Not all Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslims. It's time to have a Muslim checkpoint line in America's airports oh, and have Muslims be scrutinized. Yeah. You better believe it. You're a Muslim,
1: so why did you write a book about the founder of Christianity?
0: Dramatic Muslim invasion. Catholics write letters and Muslims stab you with letter openers. There's no question there is a Muslim problem in the world.
1: So if it wasn't clear there, and I think it was pretty clear, they're trying to tell you that you should be afraid of all Muslims, that fear-mongering against the other laid the groundwork for Fox to tear down the country's first black president, Barack Obama. I was there with conspiracy theories about his birthplace, his patriotism, and of course his religion.
0: The Obama administration, through all this appeasement and, and, and apologizing, Answers to the Qur'an first and to the Constitution second.
5: A fist bump, a pound, a terrorist fist jab.
0: This guy should go back to burning the taxpayer-funded incense to whatever pagan foreign deity he's worshipping because it's not Jesus. Many Americans, including this one, believe Barack Obama's emotional attachment to the Muslim world has hurt the USA.
1: So to recap, if they'd have you believe that Muslims are likely to be terrorists and they're calling Obama a secret Muslim, doesn't take much to kind of connect the dots there. Be afraid of Muslims, be afraid of the president, and of course, don't forget, be afraid of the enemy south of the border. Our elected officials have allowed our country to be invaded. Yeah, I'm going to say it, invaded overrun by millions of people who are gaming the system by fraudulently claiming asylum.
0: This is an invasion of our country.
5: Some people take objection when you call it an invasion. I don't know what what the heck else to call it. An unrelenting
0: stream of immigration, but why? Well, Joe Biden just said it, to change the racial mix of the country, that's the reason. And that brings us to Mexico. It is time for all of us to stop Going there. We have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor, they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided.
1: Over the years, this list of enemies, the sorts of people Americans should be very, very afraid of, got very long. So it's no wonder that Murdoch's audience was so receptive to the extreme rhetoric of Donald Trump when he came on the scene.
4: I think Islam
0: hates us.
1: When Mexico sends its people... They're not sending their best.
0: They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Women are raped at levels that nobody's ever seen before. ISIS is honoring
1: President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS. The founder of ISIS. It turns out it takes a whole big village of Murdoch's executives, producers, and anchors to lay the groundwork for the MAGA movement. Fox News, as this right-wing media juggernaut, is so much bigger than just one person. We've seen that over and over. Bill O'Reilly came and went. Roger Ailes came and went. Tucker's gone. And now Murdoch's stepping aside. But it's hard to imagine that Fox's strategy of pumping fear of the other into the homes of millions of Americans will change anytime soon. They could put that genie back in the bottle even if they wanted to. And no one has done more reporting on Fox News than my next guest. That's coming up after a quick break. So as we all digest the departure of Rupert Murdoch and the future of Fox News, there's really no one better to talk to than Brian Stelter. He's a special correspondent at Vanity Fair and the author of the upcoming book, Network of Lies, The Epic Saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the Battle for American Democracy. Brian, first, thanks so much for taking the time. I mean, I don't know many people who have spent more time thinking thanks. about Fox and the whole journey over the last several years. <laughs> um, so thank you. I-, I wanted to start kind of with what this means. I mean, what does Rupert Murdoch's retirement actually look like? Is he actually never coming back into the office? Or you've kind of alluded to this maybe not being the season finale. (laughs)
2: Right. Listen, I, I do go through a lot of Tylenol, a lot of aspirin, but I think it's important to study the right-wing media machine for the reasons you just described before the break. It is vital to understanding how the Republican Party has become so corrupted and, and frankly, so broken. It is in large part because of the incentives of these television networks. And so when it comes to Rupert Murdoch, you know, he, he was moving toward this moment for, for several years, especially during the pandemic. You could see him letting go and, and being less of a leader than before. I think many times, people view Fox as a leader of the Republican Party. Certainly GOP lawmakers think the Fox is in charge, but actually mm-hmm. Fox is not in charge. They're a follower. You know, they're they're not actually leading anywhere. And that's why there's so much dysfunction and so much chaos it's because of a lack of leadership. So I think Rupert's announcement, it confirms, it cements what was already happening. And I, I think maybe it indicates there's going to be even less leadership. I think the only thing maybe scarier than a Rupert Murdoch Fox is a Fox where no one's in charge at all.
1: Now, you've also said Lachlan is more who's taking his place, of course, is more conservative. What does that mean and what impact will that have?
2: Well, in the rare moments where Lachlan has spoken out publicly, for example, in a speech where he decried the evils of wokeness and talked about the evils of the 1619 project from The New York Times, we get the sense from Lachlan that he both shares his father's conservative values, but is more in line with the movement and more in line where the party is today, more in line with the MAGA, you know, the idea of Trumpism. We know, for example, on election night 2020, Lachlan was rooting for Trump to win, while his father has been very critical of Trump in Mm -hmm. private. So whether that reflects you know, on the air or not, I think that's very much remains to be seen. But Lachlan, you know, we should not expect any change in the editorial tone or strategy.
1: So you, you just alluded to Rupert Murdoch's kind of evolving view of Trump, which I know from reading your coverage, but I don't think a lot yeah. of people know about that. Tell us a little bit more about his evolving views and kind of what's happened over the last couple of years with Fox and the editorial strategy as it relates to Trump.
2: Right. Rupert simply was not impressed by Trump at, during the presidency, during those four years when Trump was in the White House. They were in touch a lot in the beginning. And by 2020, the two men barely spoke. They only had two phone calls in 2020 and they have not spoken since. So Rupert's given up on Trump. He does not want to see Trump back in the White House. As a source said to me for Network of Lies, Rupert hates Trump, but he is resigned to Trump being the nominee again. In other words, Rupert doesn't think he has that much power anymore. Yes, he flirted with Ron DeSantis. He talked to Glenn Youngkin, but Rupert is resigned to Trump being the nominee. And that speaks volumes about how much he's lost control of the the, the thing he created. You know, Fox News still is the beating heart of the GOP, but Mm -hmm. it's having to be, you know, it's having to follow Trump around and it's having to take, take, you know, take orders from Trump, essentially.
1: You mentioned this earlier, but you said you've said that the audience programs Fox. What does that mean exactly in terms of an editorial meeting at Fox? How does the audience program what we see on air?
2: Yeah, I'll give you an example from 2020. I studied all this with the Dominion lawsuit. The weekend that Biden won the election, the New York Post, which Rupert Murdoch owns and which Rupert Murdoch edits, he edited an editorial that said, get Rudy off TV. Rudy's hurting you, Donald Trump. Of course, the next day, Rudy was on Fox News. He was on for a weeks lying about Dominion leading to that defamation case and that amazing settlement. That's the kind of thing that shows that the audience is in charge and not Rupert and not really Lachlan Murdoch either. Now, will that change in the future? Maybe. Maybe the Fox board is going to show more spine. I think we actually saw that late, earlier this year with the Dominion settlement. The Fox board might start to step up and be more involved. But so far, it's been Rupert Lachlan, and basically a lack of leadership has been the story. And you know, Jen, the other wild card here is what happens when Rupert Barack dies. Uh, someday he will pass away, and there will be a power struggle. And James, the more liberal son, has a vision for a different Fox News that's much more tethered to reality. So all of that's possible down the line, but none of that seems imminent more of the succession
1: plot line that we've all been watching. So there's a debate coming up this week, uh, just in a couple of days. Brian, what are you watching for uh, with with that, given the host of the
2: debate? Hmm. Right. Fox is uh, leading the debate for the second time. It does speak to the Republican Party's relationship with Fox. And I think most importantly, the questions that are going to be asked, right? Are they going to get are, they, are we going to hear questions about substance? Is Fox going to help drag the party back toward a more policy based, reality based approach? Or are they going to ask about UFOs again the way Fox did at the first debate? You know, I think that the questions are telling even more so than the answers sometimes you know, that shows where Fox thinks the party is and maybe where it wants the party to be.
1: Brian Stelter, thank you so much for your time today. I'm back with some exciting news after this quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, you may have heard by now, but in case you haven't, this show is officially expanding to prime time. Inside with Jen Psaki will now air every Monday night at 8 p.m. right before Rachel Maddow, starting tomorrow. I have to say, I could not be more excited. We have a big show that we're getting ready for tomorrow night's debut. House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi is going to join me here on set to talk about the chaos in the House and the looming government shutdown. I'm feeling she's going to have some thoughts on everything going on across the aisle and how Speaker McCarthy is handling all of this. We're going to have some other special guests and obviously no shortage of news to cover. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. right here on MSNBC. And don't worry, this Sunday isn't going anywhere. This Sunday show isn't going anywhere, which means you can join me on Sundays at noon Eastern and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern every week. That does it for me today. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. Tune in tomorrow night at 8 p.m. And a reminder that you can listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. We'll see you tomorrow.